This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Neuberger, editor of Not Even Past and your host for today's episode of 15-Minute History. Today, we're here with Joe Parrott, who is a grad student in the history department at the University of Texas. Hey, Joe. Hey, how are you? Good. Uh, we are going to be talking about apartheid today. So why don't we start there with a definition? What was apartheid? Where was it? Mm-hmm. Well, apartheid was the, the policy of almost complete segregation of people along racial lines that was practiced in South Africa between 1948 and uh, 1994. And it, it meant separateness, separateness in the uh, language of Afrikaans, which was the language of the white minority government during this period. And it placed controls on African people, South Asians, mixed race peoples in uh, this country, and essentially said, you know, defined limits to where people could live, what jobs they could take, and even how they could move within the country. And now it was most rigidly applied to black Africans, and essentially allowed the the white minority government to build uh, an excellent standard of living while relegating most of the population of the country into undesirable agricultural areas or into urban slums. Uh, And it was a a violation of international standards of of human rights, and it kind of brought international criticism and and domestic revolt on the government, and and until these twin pressures uh, led to its collapse in 1994. What what were the origins of the policy? When did it originate? Well, it, it went back into the, the kind of colonial period after the, the Dutch first colonized uh, the country with uh, the Afrikaner groups. They were the, the descendants of the Dutch and the British Empire. And it, it came from a, a desire for economic expansion. Uh, the discovery of golds and diamonds in the late 1800s pushed Europeans to to look at native peoples as a, a source of cheap labor. Uh, ideas of racial and civilizational superiority led the British government and later the Afrikaner government to establish increasingly strict regulations on African travel and work in order to assure that there was a, an affordable labor force uh, to work in the mines. So that was all before the 1940s. How did that actual laws of apartheid differ from these earlier laws? So the Afrikaner government in 1948 under the Nationalist Party uh, kind of formalized and standardized these earlier piecemeal segregationist practices that differed from region to region. And it gathered together these local laws, these different laws, and created one unified national system. And the government divided the state into separate, what they called racial nations, essentially, forcibly relocating Africans into reserves and townships. And the government banned intermarriage and created wholly separate and, and extremely unequal education systems and public spaces. And this policy reached its peak in the 1960s when the national government sought to establish what it called Bantu stands, which were uh, African, where Africans would have nominal self-government under a system of, of tribal leadership. Uh, but in reality, these states were occupying the worst lands, and they were wholly dependent economically and politically on the, the state of South Africa, which completely surrounded them. And so this represented the kind of final step in creating a wholly separate and wholly unequal ways of life between this white minority and the majority African and Indian um, populations. And, and in many ways, it was kind of a, an extremely exaggerated version of the racial segregation that was going on here within the United States. How did uh, the African majority react to apartheid? 
Well, obviously, the the vast majority of the non-white population didn't really agree with these restrictions, and over time, they attempted to resist uh, many of them. The African National Congress was the first group to kind of organize against these laws. It was it was founded in 1912 as kind of a, a traditionally moderate party, you know, attempting to to change the laws themselves. But by the 1940s, the ANC, African National Congress, had uh, developed a more dynamic young leadership that was trying to move towards a, a mass protest, a mass movement. Uh, and among this, uh, this young generation was Nelson Mandela, who I'm sure we've all heard about. Uh, and the ANC hoped to replace apartheid with a more multiracial policy, a more multiracial government. Um, and at the same time the ANC was organizing, there were other groups, the most famous of which is probably the Pan-Africanist Congress, sometimes called the, the PAC. And, and these other groups had different ideas. The PAC wanted a more African-centered government. But altogether, these, these various parties urged strikes, they urged boycotts, and you know, general defiance campaigns to demonstrate um, their unhappiness with these laws. How did the government react to boycotts and strikes and defiance? Well, of course, these these um, boycotts and things, they struck at the heart of white rule. And so the government had to do something. They had to react. And so in the, the 1950s and the 1960s, it expanded its powers to control these nationalists, these African parties, and it attempted to silence the majority of their leaders. And so parties like the ANC continued to defy this official policy, but it found it harder going. Uh, and the government uh, attempted to end these protests with force, and this kind of culminated in the Sharpeville Massacre uh, of 1960. And, and this happened in a township just south of Johannesburg, uh, where p- police killed uh, 69 anti-apartheid protesters. And so after this, mass protests erupted throughout the country, um, and the panicked Afrikaner authorities banned both the ANC and the PAC, and imprisoned much of the anti-apartheid leadership, including Nelson Mandela, who by this point had become the the head of the kind of violent wing of the the ANC. And these actions undermine the mass agitation against apartheid, but it it couldn't stop everything. And so individual acts of defiance and a general feeling of anger kind of remained underneath the surface of the country. Did it attract attention internationally or was South Africa just sort of left to um, carry out its its, um, human rights abuses on its own? No, absolutely. There was a lot of international attention that was growing throughout this this period. And, and most people uh, around the world kind of viewed apartheid as this unpleasant anachronism. You, know? it, you need to remember that apartheid appeared at the beginning of a period where we had decolonization in Africa and Asia, and also in the early years of the civil rights movement here in the United States. And so the whole world seemed to be moving in one direction, and then South Africa was going backward, right, away from racial equality. And that's not to say that everyone saw it this way. In, in the U.S., especially um, segregationists in the South and the kind of hardcore cold warriors uh, within the government felt that South Africa was doing a good job, quote, developing, you know, its African peoples and also keeping communism out of the region. But, but more generally, there was a sense kind of unease with these policies. And most people felt that the Afrikaner government was really violating human rights, um, And so the passage of laws controlling the movement of non-white peoples, and especially Sharpeville, turned the feelings of unease into kind of action. So the United Nations was at the forefront criticizing apartheid, but not really accomplishing much. Uh, In the United States, there were non-governmental organizations like the American Committee on Africa, sometimes called um, the ACOA, that helped organize boycotts and urged uh, the American government to, to further isolate South Africa. 
And, and so a lot of these movements arose throughout the world. Similar ones happened in the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, the Nordic countries, Japan, and, and really kind of all across the political spectrum internationally. And in the U.S. in the 80s, um, there was an anti-apartheid protest movement calling for companies in the U.S. to withdraw investment in support for uh, the South African economy, right? Yes. The, the divestment campaign. Was that important? What was that about, and what role did it play in, uh, in the international movement criticizing apartheid? Absolutely. So divestment was big, and it kind of evolved from this, this earlier organizing. So in 1976, there was a, another um, South African student protest in the township of Soweto. And it again turned violent. Uh, the South Africans came in and kind of forcibly put down the, this student rebellion that all they wanted was was more liberal education. Um, and so this this became international news. People were horrified by these actions as, they, as they'd been after Sharpeville. And these older movements took advantage of this new interest in South Africa. And so a, a number of new groups are, arose around the, the kind of traditional core. Trans-Africa was one of the most interesting. Um, Trans-Africa was an African-American group. Was that in the U.S.? Yes, that was in the U.S. Um, and it didn't its members uh, started a number of different things. They had a 24-hour picket of the South African embassy. They lobbied Congress, um, and they raised funds for anti-apartheid groups at concerts and things like this. And generally, these activists latched on to South Africa because they, they saw it as, as an issue of racial equality, right? It, it related to what they were fighting for at home. But at the same time, there were a number of South Africans in exile who lived in the United States and kind of helped guide and inspire these movements. And uh, Oliver Tombo, for instance, was a was a very important figure. There's a the airport in Johannesburg is named after him. He was the president of the ANC during this period, and he helped cultivate this kind of solidarity internationally. Uh, Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu is probably a familiar name to some folks. He became an important international voice and was especially important for kind of attracting religious groups uh, to get involved. And so as the anti-apartheid movement grew throughout the 1980s, students became really active. Um, and in 1986, it kind of reached this peak where there was a real victory. The American Congress kind of um, inspired by its constituents, banned trade and investment with South Africa over the the veto of Ronald Reagan, who wanted to continue kind of um, attracting South Africa through trade and things like this. And so this was the, the peak of the protest in many ways. And Japan followed suit. A number of other countries followed suit. And South Africa was really isolated internationally. Did the international movement bring about the end of apartheid? No, certainly not. That's a, a little bit too simplistic. Um, the international level was important, but the, the regime really fell because of events that were going on within South Africa itself. So after Soweto, you get a, a new domestic insurgency um, that's coming about because African peoples especially are, are just tired of it. And, and remind the, us, when was Soweto? Soweto was in 1976. So in the late 70s and the early 80s, um, the African National Congress, the ANC, and the Pan-African uh, Congress, which and the PAC, are, are both kind of trying to start insurgencies. Um, and part of the reason was because the country faced a deep economic crisis in the 1970s, as many other countries did. Um, but this this crisis was exacerbated by the fact that modernization hadn't happened in the industrial sectors. Cheap African labor prevented South Africa from having to mechanize or innovate. And so there was this kind of general malaise. And when that hit the country, it, it trickled down very harshly to the African population. So with, with kind of little to lose, they were more willing to take up arms against this minority government that had been repressing them for so long. So did um, the economic crisis 
and the political crisis lead you you said it led them to take up arms did mm-hmm. it lead to organized activism that ultimately brought about the end of of apartheid? Pretty much, yeah. In the 1980s, this new anti-apartheid movement became much more widespread than it ever had been before. And black peoples really started working together to oppose this policy. And new coalitions were built. So in one example, um, students who had kind of had their own tradition of organizing and striking workers who had their own tradition um, formed a a new group. And and these kind of coalitions had not existed before. And it it represented a, a major victory for these black nationalists. And so these coalitions form their own kind of standing groups, uh, like the National Front or the United Democratic Front, the UDF. Uh, and this, the latter one, the UDF, um, developed really strong ties with the ANC and its kind of multiracial goals for the country. And so these movements placed new pressure on the government to change its policies. Um, and it introduced more visible forms of resistance. So not only strikes as there had been, um, but bombings in the cities themselves. And so by taking these protests from the, the black townships to places where the whites live, the movements really shattered this fiction of the peaceful, successful apartheid state. Uh, So with growing violence and resistance becoming more widespread and becoming more visible, um, what did the government do? Well, clearly the, the government had to take some kind of reaction to preserve its its traditional state. And so it launched a, a new, what it called a, a total strategy, which combined repression uh, with superficial reforms. And you can think of this kind of in the way that the United States fought for hearts and minds in, in Vietnam. It's somewhat similar to that. So in one example of, of this kind of reform, uh, the government created a tricameral legislature, which gave... Uh, minority Indian and colored groups uh, control over their own education and health matters. But in reality, this this legislature was was kind of an appearance of liberalization while the white government still held the levers uh, of power. Attempts were also made to increase the livability of townships and, and relax segregation in private schools uh, and, and hotels and places like this. But, you know, the, the prices of schools and hotels still limited access predominantly to whites. So this wasn't a, a meaningful reform. And at the same time, the, the government really militarized the white society, created this um, sense of, of, of isolation, of, of kind of the last defense. And so you really got the, the whites uh, rallying around um, the government. So this was an attempt to repackage, to protect apartheid. But most of the uh, African people saw through this. And, and the, the UDF, as I mentioned before, was effectively kind of a, an attempt to oppose this, this co-optation the government was trying. So the government's attempting to reform, but sort of on the surface, and um, the African majority isn't really buying it. Um, And both sides are really digging in their heels and determined to protect or win for themselves. So what happens next? So, so this is where you get some of the violence from the 1980s that people may remember from the news. So alongside these more peaceful protests and strikes, uh, the ANC revived their armed wing, which I'm going to butcher this name, but it's Mkonto We Sizwe, a spear of the nation. Uh, and this is what Nelson Mandela had led before his imprisonment. And so it essentially picked up where it had left off in the 1960s and, and launched this armed struggle. So clashes with the government forces increased. Um, And freedom fighters were using tools that we might today associate with terrorism, and some people have been in the wake of Nelson Mandela's death. 
uh, such as bombings and things like this. But really, these were the the only tools that this disenfranchised majority of the nation had to fight this much more powerful uh, white minority government. So these attacks, bombings, landmines, things like this, it, it hurt civilians. It also hurt innocent Africans. And it became a problem for the ANC, both both morally and politically. But it was the only option that they really had. Uh, how did the government react to the violence? Well, the, the government had to had to react, and, and a lot of Black Africans also disapproved of these these new um, tactics. And so, one of the things that the government did is it was funding uh, alternatives to the UDF or to the UNC, and they had things like the Nkatha Freedom Party, which was meant to kind of divide the anti-apartheid movement. But you also have the the government matching violence with violence, so. In the 1980s, South Africa essentially be, becomes a police state. The their their armored cars driving through townships to to try to to keep order and things like this. And and the the National Party, the NP, had always claimed that it was you know at That's the head the, of this. the government, the ruling party. Yes, the the Afrikaner Party. Yes, it had always claimed that it was in charge of this this peaceful, progressive state. And now with with the the armored cars going through the townships. This this seemed like it, it was a bit of a lie. Um, but the problem is, is that neither the the majority African people nor the more well armed government could could really win. And so there was a real stalemate going on by the middle of the 1980s. So a stalemate, but somehow soon after this, apartheid was abolished. How did the stalemate? Um, get broken? How did the country break the stalemate? Right. So this is that famous story of, of great leadership and good luck that we've all seen on the History Channel and will probably be there for the next two or three weeks. Um, and, you know, honestly, the, it, it's true. It's a, it's a good narrative because it's almost impossible to imagine peaceful resolutions to this issue. But, you know, that's exactly what happened. And part of it uh, became was because this internal pressure combined with external isolation to force South Africa to make some changes. So the economy was getting worse, the fighting is getting worse, and the nationalist government uh, feels like it has to move. So under F.W. de Klerk, um, it decided to make some political concessions. So the party would try to create, recreate itself as the head of a democratic, nominally democratic, multiracial state. And so the, the party hoped it, this would lighten international pressure and maybe convince some moderate black nationalists to participate in the government. So de Klerk enacted a number of policies, uh, which, which I don't really have time to go into, but the most dramatic was the unbanning of parties like the ANC and the release of, of resistance politicians like Nelson Mandela, who had been in prison for almost three decades. And did this work? No, not not for the Nationalist Party. It didn't. Uh, th these gambles kind of backfired. And so the Nationalist Party gained some fleeting support. You know, it looked good, especially among whites and to some non-whites as well. But this liberalization empowered the ANC and really empowered Nelson Mandela, who had become this kind of international and domestic icon during his imprisonment. And so Mandela effectively united the South African movement behind him and brought greater pressure on the government. Now, fortunately, Mandela had come to question the necessity of violence during his incarceration. So under his leadership, the ANC suspended its armed struggle and, and kind of redoubled efforts to reach a negotiated settlement with the Nationalist Party. So on both sides, there were some genuine concessions for the first time with um, the ANC limiting violence or really mm -hmm. turning its back on violence and with the Nationalist Party choosing to democratize the government. Was that enough to end apartheid? Well, it, it took a little bit more. Um, there was still some distrust in internal 
opposition, even within the the two parties themselves. And so it took the the leadership of Mandela, de Klerk, and a number of their associates to kind of keep these discussions for a real transition to democracy on track through this tumultuous uh, period of the early 1990s. Uh, And so uh, at a a town called Kempton Park in 1994, the ANC and the National Party finally agreed to a new democratic constitution. And there were a number of key innovations that that kind of included these um, these concessions that you were talking about. So the government would work with the transitional council to oversee the move to a new democratic state. And for the first five years, a a government of national unity would be comprised of all the parties receiving enough votes for the National Assembly, so no one was left out of power. Uh, A Bill of Rights would permanently guarantee not only racial, but also gender and sexual equality. And finally, the conglomeration of homelands, Bantu stands, things like this, would be replaced with nine new provinces. And so this, in essence, this new constitution ended apartheid and introduced the new democratic state of South Africa that we know. So that was 20 years ago, and we see this really quite remarkable, remarkably peaceful transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens after that? So, so there, there's the the campaign you have to do with a democratic state, and both parties really show themselves. You know, we are the parties of the new South Africa, and 20 million people show up and they vote peacefully, and everyone's kind of surprised by this. And there were a few improprieties, but generally, all the parties approve of the results. International watchers approve of the results, and the ASC, uh, the ANC, wins three fifths of the vote. The Nationalist Party one fifth, and then a number of other people uh, win the rest. And so Mandela becomes the first president of this democratic South Africa. Um, His associate in the ANC, Thabo Mbeki, is is his deputy, and then de Klerk from the Nationalist Party is also serving as a... So it's really a remarkable story after decades of of segregation and repression that this democratic government elected um, a black African president and there was no violence after the election... It was, it was peaceful. Yeah, relatively limited violence, especially considering how many guns were there, how many problems still existed. And, and, and South Africa's done relatively well since then with some policies of uh, kind of land redistribution, the growth of the middle class, and improvement in foreign investment. And, you know, there's still problems, but, but generally it is seen as, as kind, of a, kind of a modern day miracle, a small miracle of sorts. Well, it's really a remarkable story. Thank you, Joe. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.